Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. So, save that one. And we're hey, back. we're streaming. Yeah. We are over the top. <laughs> over. What's up, everybody? The top. I am what time back is after it everywhere? a week of vacation. It is 10.34 a.m. on the West Coast. It means it's 1.34 p.m. on the East Coast. It's like 4.30, 3.30 a.m. in Australia, 5.30 UTC, something like that. I don't know. How's everybody doing? What's happening? It's Good actually 5.34 and 3.34 <laughs> places. It's not a 56-minute How does time work? Nobody knows. No one does know. It's all a construct. Good I don't know. Today. I think the break has uh, got everyone pumped up, huh? That's right. I got. Yeah, had a good break. I took the kids, went on the lake, went to Sonoma, went to San Fran. I am Ooh. revived. Look at you. I'm back. You sound good. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed with Fun. you. Uh, I've noticed that if I send you a Twitter message, I now have to wait maybe seven to ten days to get a response. So that <laughs> yeah. may have that may have something to do with your clarity of mind, also. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not spending a lot of time on Twitter at the moment. No, it doesn't appear so. That's yeah, I, got, I, I I spent last week off, and I had a look at the messages. The messages was an absolute disaster this time around. So, apologies to everybody who uh, sent me one of those messages. Can you, you know, just it's fun. Burn it down and start over. <laughs> yeah. Dude, looking for like old messages on that thing is just uh, terrible. That out. Terrible. Even for someone who you speak to regularly, it's not good. You got to hunt, hunt for those messages. It's hard. How hard it's would it be to add worse. search in the messages? It's like it, it's Twitter, sir. You got to pay for that. <laughs> Jesus, I don't even know if they're gonna do that. <laughs> what oh. is this crack team working on? If not, just add search to the DMs. <laughs> I don't know. Not gonna lie. The uh, development of products has been a little slower than I'd like. Spaces, I think, is big. It's a good platform. I went on Greenhouse. As long as you stay off it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) As long as you don't get addicted. I went on Greenhouse Spotify's thing. That sucks. Uh, And Clubhouse seems to have some issues. So the audio thing, I think Twitter and Facebook probably end up winning, but. They should be doing more. Anyway, I what, uh, what topics have we got today, fellas? We haven't actually we haven't talked about this beforehand. No. Let no. me get out in front of it and say I got I got Berkshire's earnings. So what do you guys got? Wow, there you have it. Uh, I might talk curate. I'll talk curate. Fuck it. <laughs> Everybody loves that. All right, I've got um, you know it's back to school, so I've got a multidisciplinary piece put together on the game theory of greetings. That's going to cover a bunch of different uh... <laughs> the game theory of greetings. Yeah. We're going to get, we we're going to get animals in there. We're going to get uh, game theory. It's going to, it's going to cover let's a lot kick of it off with, Let's kick it off with Berkshire because I want people to hang around. <laughs> game yeah, theory of greetings. Is that like when you throw the baseball bat up in the air and you grab it and whoever grabs closest to the top, has the conch or whoever that works. I'm not entirely sure. I don't think that's what no. he's going to talk about, Toby. Maybe. 
Let's do let's do no. Berkshire's earnings because uh, Buffett. Yeah. Oh, people love the people love Warren. Um, so the big takeaway I think is that they're still net sellers. They've been punching out. Uh, they bought two point one billion dollars worth of sold two point one billion dollars of stock. Bought one point one. They've sold out of a whole lot of stuff. Um, I think this is fake news, dude. They bought their own news? shares. Well, I'm to- I'm not talking about the shares. I'm talking about their holdings. Okay. So that's on like a nine hundred ish billion of assets total. So don't get too just trimming around the edge. Just but selling rather than buying. Like that's just directionally. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, spent six billion on share repurchases, down from six point six in the first quarter. Uh, down from nine billion in the two quarters before that. Uh, but still, obviously, still thinks it's cheap because buying back uh, has has said in the past that they wouldn't sell below $20 billion in cash, has raised that to $30 billion. Um, but he's got 70 or 80 that he would love to put to work. Broad-based recovery, uh, just about everything is up, including um, the railroad. Uh, the railroad revs, and I don't know if this is because last year was a bad comp, but the railroad revenue was up 26%. Pre-tax earnings up 33%. That's extraordinary. It's like some sort of SaaS tech stock, the way that's running. Yeah, I think that's a low base. What is it off 2019? Uh, I don't know. I didn't dig yeah. into it that much. Revenues uh, in the real estate brokerage is plus 48%. Pre-tax earnings plus 129%. That's not bad. To give you a sense, UMP is up uh, quarter to 29% comp to uh, 2020 quarter, quarter two. So Consumer products manufacturing revs plus sixty eight percent pre tax earnings plus one hundred and ninety seven percent. That's Forest River RVs, Duracell, Brook Sports, Fruit of the Loom. Building products plus twenty nine percent and revs pre tax earnings plus forty percent. That's Clayton Homes, Shaw, Johns Manville, Acme Building Products, Benjamin Moore. That's the Paints, MyTech Construction and Engineering. Blockbuster return, not bad. For Berkshire and Buffett again. Anybody surprised by any of that? I well, I think some it. of some of that's a bounce off of a low. It's a bounce, right? yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I'd call it blockbuster. I think it was just very solid, very Berkshire-like, just kind of relentless forward progress, one foot in front of the other. Um, obviously, encouraging, kind of more from a general U.S. economy state because it is a nice keyhole into the U.S. economy, but. Um, yeah, I think it's good. I think they're they're just executing relentlessly. Yeah, I'll tell you what, progressives kicking their ass in uh, car insurance. They're gonna have to. There, there might be a problem there. Why do you say that? And they just are. Like, if you look at the results from Progressive, um, there's there's something going on there. I don't know how big of a de- how big of a deal it is, but um, it's flow. Yeah, better advertising the Geico Geckos, just a little bit old hat and flows uh, the new hotness. I mean, like yeah. 10 years of new hotness. I mean, I don't think it's that. I, I think um, I, I think it could be uh, years of... Uh, so Progressive sort of like, uh, they invested a lot in... Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's telematics is what they did. Um, and I mean, like their loss ratios are much, much better. Uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be shocked if uh, Geico's got a little bit of a legacy. We competed on cost and they underinvested in the business a bit. Um, that, would not, that would not shock me. Do you think it's mm-hmm. telling that 
uh, he's a net seller. Like obviously, we're, we're talking minimal around the edges, but he hasn't he hasn't bagged an elephant in the last quarter. Obviously, we would have heard about that beforehand. But net seller of equities, net buyer of Berkshire Hathaway. Does that sort of tell you Berkshire Hathaway stock net repurchaser? Does that sort of tell you about the state of value more broadly? Like Berkshire Hathaway is a representative of value, very cheap, underlying, doing very well, um, but can't find anywhere to deploy. Motivated reasoning here, huh, Toby? Yeah. <laughs> is that a leading question? Yeah. Objection yeah. leading? Yeah. Leading the witness. <laughs> I, I don't know what they sold. I, I'm not reading too much into it. I do think something that's interesting is their, uh, their bond book has like skewed more and more foreign, um, less and less corporate, which kind of makes sense to me. Uh, corporate as a percentage of the overall bonds really took a dip down uh, this past quarter, but their foreign their foreign bond holdings are substantial relative to the rest, which I thought is kind of interesting. What do they own? Foreign sovereigns or foreign corporates? Yeah. Sovereigns for the most part, as I understand it. It's probably some asset liability matching, but then I looked at their uh, their debt stack, and it's predominantly U.S. But then again, you got U.S. cash flows, so I don't know how he's thinking about it. But I just find it interesting. Well, they certainly right. borrow cheap foreign currencies or money as well, so I don't. Know. It is probably some matching. They've got some zeros in it, like zero coupon bonds, right? That they've been able to issue over time. Yeah, the, oh, in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I don't know. I, I think um I, I think it's like a pretty good pretty good result. Um, but I I am concerned a little bit about what's going on at Geico. I think that warrants attention if you own the stock. Is it the, the uh dairy queenization of Geico? I, I mean I don't know. Uh somebody like Bloomstrand probably has a much better idea than I do, but it just seems to me that progressive is writing a lot more and losing a lot less. And that's a pretty decent combination. Maybe they got to steal away flow the way Sprint stole away the, uh, was it Verizon? A Verizon guy? Oh, yeah. Oh, did they? <laughs> Can you hear me now, dude? Yeah, that guy. You remember that? Huh. What's up with using the same, uh, like what are the same guys appearing at all these different ads? Is this like a handful of actors who are able to do an ad? Probably, I guess. I always thought it was pretty smart to make it uh, the gecko because then, like, if Sounds you flow, like well, no, not just that, but uh, it's the same thing with like a lot of the cartoon royalties where the actor can get big enough to where they then want to demand yeah. more of the economic share of the value yeah. creation. Whereas the gecko's agent, uh, he's not working very hard because he doesn't well, exist. I've noticed that they've diversified the flows, there's quite a few other stars you know in those ads now yeah jamie and whoever yeah just just keep her on her toes tell her she's let her know she's expendable yeah that's right you don't Don't want her comfortable yeah don't start negotiating for real money flow if you go to different business if you go to different countries there are different flows there's an australian flow huh really that makes sense yeah fracturing the marketplace for yeah for flow yeah uh, hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Someone, someone said the most interesting man in the world. He got, he got, uh, he got moved out. There's a new most interesting man in the world. They went younger. It'll happen. It happens to everybody. 
All right, I think we've flogged this uh, this horse to death and beyond. So, uh, you want to oh, just... you know, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting about uh, Berkshire when you look at it is how good of a lending business Clayton Holmes is. Mm, yeah, hardly it's any like write-offs. If people want to like look at interesting stuff. They get to charge a lot, and they don't take a lot of charge off. So that's a pretty good lending business. Why don't we have more manufactured homes in the U.S.? It seems like we should be working towards some Jetson style, like Lego building uh, home. Instead, we're like doing what we did 50 Customs. years ago. Nimbyism, man. Yeah. People care. Why, why would you care if it's like put together? Uh, what are they called? Modular, like in a modular way. And then yeah, well, they look pretty good too. They're not like eyesores or anything. It's not a, it's not a trailer park. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen more. I, I saw one the other day driving down. It was two uh, trailers and they had halves of a house and they were going to, I assume, just put it together. And you don't have to put it together as a, you don't have to put two halves of the house together. Can't you just put together like the, the bit, the, the walls and like just bolt the walls together? I don't know how many of this stuff is done. Way out of I'm telling you, that's what they were going to do. They were going to put the two halves together. Oh. <laughs> no, I think, I, I don't know why. Um, you would think that there's got to be something uh, like logic would maybe dictate that there should be some way to build homes that are less expensive, but um, our economy does not do it for some reason. And I do think like as far as manufactured housing, it's got a real stigma in the U S where I live. I think uh, if you knock the house down, the land is worth a little bit more for the most part. Yeah. But old homes on, on expensive land. It's kind of like where I am. Problem down here is you can't improve them because it's all in a flood zone, right? So, like, you can't, FEMA won't let you put over 50% of the value of your house into your house. But, like, the structure is worth so little that if you like redo a kitchen, you usually like hit your 50% allotment. So, you have to like do that. And then you've got to rezone it. And then you've got to re uh, go in for more approvals. They're, they're really trying to incentivize people just bulldozing houses to build new ones. Because if you do that, then you have to build your house higher on the land. Uh, so I thought it was some broken window Keynesian uh, GDP expansion. No, I think it's uh, I think it's a goal to minimize flood losses over time. Mm. Maybe privatize more of it. I don't know. Hit but. us with some veggies, JT. All right, let's get into it. Uh, so this is titled "The Game Theory of Greetings," and some of the stuff we're going to cover is, is uh, out of this book called Wild Rituals by Dr. Caitlin O'Connell. Um, and she's like spent a ton of time in the African savanna studying elephants. But um, so all, animals all have greeting rituals, social animals, and some of them are kind of funny. I know you guys like the, all the animal things. I don't know why you come to investing podcasts to learn about animals, but whatever. <laughs> um, so one of them is what are the sperm whales do, JT? I know that's what everybody wants sperm whales, but I, I don't have any sperm whale greetings. Uh, but Ooh. hyenas will apparently pre present their erect genitalia to each other during a greeting ceremony, uh, which is obviously a way of making themselves vulnerable. Um, and we'll get into a little bit more of like why they would want to do so that. So Toby and I met. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now elephants will not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, we got vulnerable together, and then we got over it. So. <laughs> Now it's just flaccid introductions. Yeah. So uh, elephants will greet each other by placing their trunks in each other's mouths. 
which is kind of an interesting thing. But um, and then if it's a very joyous uh, reunion, they will both simultaneously evacuate their bowels and their bladder in in unison. <laughs> so elephants do things a little bit different, but there's actually a biological reason why they will greet each other this way. And it's it allows them to smell what the other elephant was eating. And then presumably what they've been eating is then safe, given that the elephant that's, you know, they're meeting hasn't died. So it's a way actually for them to gather information about their environment. Um, and that's the same reason actually like dogs will lick, lick each other's faces and try to lick your face is to figure out like what you've been eating so that you don't, uh, you know, so that they don't, they, they know that it's more likely to eat, that it's safe to eat whatever that that other entity has been eating. Um, so humans have a lot of different greeting rituals, um, you know, and, and they're always about being a signal of recognition, of goodwill, of welcome. And, you know, the Inuits, Eskimos have like, you know, the Eskimo kiss where they rub noses together, uh, a lot of bowing, a lot of handshakes, which that actually came from checking to see if the other person had a weapon on them, like a dagger buried up their sleeve. And actually the shaking motion might have been to like see if anything shake the dagger shook, up. Yeah, shook loose, right? Like <laughs> I'm going to shake your arm to make sure that like whatever you have in there will fall out. And that way I know um, you're not trying to kill me. Um, and then you have, you know, things like the kissing the ring of the mafia Don. Um, all these things are about, uh, part of it is about hierarchical sorting, which can reduce uh, tension. Like when someone's not sure who's in charge, right? Um, it strengthens the bonds and, um, the other thing too is that it actually provides real-time psychological feedback. So you can see what the state of the other person is, as well as uh, actual like exchange of of hormonal feedback. So the pheromones that we put off, we smell each other, and we like are gathering information about that person. And in fact, um, you know we're we're often attracted to strangers because it reduces the chances of of potential inbreeding and you know creates more genetic diversity. So. They've done studies where they they'll have people they'll ha like they'll have women smell shirts that a guy slept in and they will be attracted to the scent the further they are like genetically away from that person. It's kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, so all of this ties back into going like back to school uh, for yeah, a lot of us have kids and everybody's going back to school now. And I thought that this would, I'm going to try to land this back into some, something good. Maybe you can tell your kids when they're going back to school. Um, but there's a, there's a game theory when people are meeting each other where, and, and really like it's, it's a, and, and shout out to my friend, Paul in Ireland, who, uh, first kind of connected these dots for me on that. There's actually sort of multi, like a Nash equilibrium that's taking place. If you know about prisoners dilemmas, uh, this is John Nash from the movie beautiful mind. Um, that was about him, but this is the math that he was working on. Um, this, this a Nash equilibrium, which is defined as a, a stable state of a system that involves several interacting participants in which no participant can gain by a change of strategy as long as other participants remain unchanged. So this is classic prisoner's dilemma where um, it doesn't behoove you to, you'd be better off if you defected, um, but and the other person also has to defect as well. So it's sort of a question of like, who's going to go first, right? Um, so in, we have a, I, I know someone who has this, he told his daughter this in particular, and, and actually I've tried to make this sort of like a Taylor family motto. Um, Cause I think it's such a smart thing, but it's, he tells them to go positive and go first. And 
really, um, you know, if you think about <clears throat> this, this prisoner's dilemma, the world is really programmed for uh, like this sort of tit for tat, which is a, a famous strategy in, in game theory uh, that is actually evolutionarily stable strategy. Uh, so it's very robust actually to, and it shows up in human form, which is like eye for an eye or the golden rule, right? Like it's always return what the other person is giving you. That's tit for tat. And so if the world is sort of programmed for tit for tat, the logical approach is actually to go positive and go first because you're likely to get back what you put out there. Um, so it's a, it's a logical opening gambit in a world that's programmed for tit for tat. So tell your kids as they go back to school, go positive, smile, say hi, go first, because the other person is, is kind of wants you to do it and they want to smile, but they don't want to be the one to put themselves out there because of this kind of prisoner's dilemma, right? Like who's going to go first? Who's going to put, be vulnerable? Who's going to put their trunk into the mouth like the elephant first? Don't do that. <laughs> Keep your trunk to yourself. Yeah. Well, okay. Don't go too far with that. But, and this is especially true in situations. And this is where uh, prisoner's dilemma, especially if there are multiple rounds of a prisoner's dilemma, you see cooperation start to emerge. When it's just a single interaction, then the actual like better strategy is to like defect and it doesn't matter. But if it, you're going to be interacting with the person multiple times, you want to get on that forward momentum, good basis of, you know, both defecting, both smiling, both saying hi, which is what school is. It's a multiple interaction prisoner's dilemma. So go positive and go first and get that going. Um, and then really like it's, I like to think that it, it sort of increases your, your life's serendipity coefficient you know the more people that you meet and say hi to and who knows where it ends up leading right um you bill and toby meeting each other because somebody was willing to go first and say hi and uh you know it leads to all kinds of crazy stuff so tell your kids when they're as they're going back to school to go positive and go first and teach them some game theory while you're doing it if you can uh, but that's great advice jt yeah you were there I sir as well I was there, yeah. Yes, you you just kept your trunk in your own mouth. <laughs> That's what I, yeah, as I like to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I agree with that. I think being positive and being uh being kind and going first is good. It has never served me wrong. I think some of uh you know uh, the financial industry could probably do a little more rooting for each other and a little less uh, rooting against each other. Saw saw some people taking some L's today. That's okay, you know. Keep the process. Make it back. What blew up today? Something. Catapult wasn't good. What is it? Uh what is it? Or how far down was it? I oh, it was like fifty percent down, something like that. Yeah. What is that? It's subprime lending. My understanding oh, okay. is that it's like lease to own type stuff. Uh, partners with retailers. It's not good when you're. Velocity of sales slows down when you're running at losses and your loan loss reserves double. It's kind of the first quarter after you were SPAC and you pull guidance. There's some things that make people a little bit, but here's the thing about the guidance pull that I don't understand. Like after, like after you increase your bad debt expense to this, to the extent that they did, who the hell cares what you guide to? Like in my mind, you sort of lost some credibility there. So what do I care what you have to say? Now it's just 
figure out how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, I think. But, you know, I am uh, I am an investor in OpFi and uh, there was a short report about it. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe the egg is coming to my face soon, too. So we shall see. It's right here. The egg can hit me right in it. JT got a good uh, suggestion here from somebody. Uh, it, the joys of uh, sweat, the strange science of perspiration. Mm. All right. That's uh, I wonder if they've got some sperm well stuff in there. That's probably right up your alley. I'm guessing sperm wells don't sweat a lot, given that. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe they do. I have no idea, but that's that's a good question. It's probably they are under the water. I don't know that that precludes sweating, but it seems like it would be difficult. Sweat a lot when you swim. Humans After sweat a lot when they swim. swim. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's correct. They're just in the water. Just don't notice. That's right. But I like that as a philosophy. I like that idea of uh, positive and first and kind. All oh, that's great. The world would be better if everybody did that in the first instance. It's just hard when you're shy. Everybody's shy. But it's a good way to be. I endorse it. How do you, are you shy? You think you're shy? Everybody is dead. Everybody's an introvert. Are you joking? I don't think I'm very shy. I think it's context to, to specific. Yeah. Yeah, I buy that. I definitely buy that. Something that you guys said to me that I think is true. It's fun to be on a podcast when people sort of like want to come up and say hello. It's nice to not have to break ice when you're in a room. Yeah. Mm. That's that's very helpful. Uh, that's nice. I must have been Toby that said that. <laughs> Could have been. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. I don't know if you. <laughs> the people know you. All right. What's your topic today, Billy? Well, so I'm going to talk curate, but it doesn't have to be curate. I just think it's a really interesting situation right now. Um, you know, so like, obviously I own the shares uh, and some have asked me, will I be able to pivot if sort of the business hicks up or hiccups? Uh, and I, I, I'm not like uh, my history with this business is I've always been fascinated by the consumer psychology of it. Always. Uh, the valuation never fully made sense to me. And then it never made sense to me because it got too cheap last year. And here, I, I like my free cash flow number is lower than a lot of people that I see cite uh, what their free cash flow number is. I think, you know, there's dividends that they have to pay out to minority shareholder. Is this prospective free cash flow or? Well, who the hell knows? Right. Okay. Well, I'm saying the numbers that you're, these are what you have yeah. sort of in your head of what you think they might be able to do. Yeah. The business is in a really weird spot. Like it doesn't really grow, but it also doesn't really shrink, but no one, I don't think anybody really trusts it because everybody's association, my own included is that, you know, it's a, it's a legacy distribution business. And if you wanted to be a bull, I think you could argue, well, look at what 2020 was. It was the best year that that business has seen in a long time. And we're further along in the cord cutting narrative than we've ever been before. So presumably some of the, of the shoppers have figured out another way to shop. Uh, on the other hand, like I would be lying if I said, yeah, I'm super confident in the assets duration and perpetuity, right? Like there's, there's clearly a legacy benefit that they get from the television. Um, 
So like there's this really weird dynamic going on where I think, I mean, a, a large part of my bet was Greg Maffei and he's got a really interesting decision to make right now because where the shares are trading, uh, if they want to get aggressive with it, they could probably retire somewhere around 10% of the company if they wanted to do an opportunistic buyback. But if you go back and you read like historical transcripts, he was doing buybacks and the market didn't really react very well to it. So I don't know if he's a little bit gun shy to do a buyback. And I think if you look at some of the historical um, shareholder base, they're not exactly amped up about buybacks because they didn't work. And I think if you look at like a retailer like Bed Bath & Beyond, they did a lot of buybacks into an entity that it didn't work out, right? So there's an argument to be made that maybe cash back is a better decision. And I, I just kind of think like, I can argue on one hand that the business is stronger than it's ever been. I can argue on the other hand that margins have been declining and best customer spend has been declining over the past three years. So maybe it's not as strong as you know, I think it is. Um, and it's one of those, I, I think this is an interesting point in the company's history and capital allocation. We'll see how, you know, the books are always written when people are looking back at the story, right? But this is like a very, if you're interested in capital allocation and you're interested in liberty, uh, my buddy Francisco uh, had a tweet and it showed like the three different entities that Maffei was talking about and how his strategy and capital allocation is different in each, right? And like one is Liberty Broadband and that is uh, in large part charter. So it's basically like a growth equity. So he's just going to keep buying in the shares. You've got Liberty Sirius. Um, doesn't really have a lot of cash flow, so they got to wait. Um, but one day will be a buyback story. And then Curate sort of has a lot more uh, perceived uncertainty and probably uncertainty. So I, I just think if you're interested in capital allocation and you think he's moderately good at it, watching those three entities over the next 12 months could be a good learning process, uh, you know, in real time. They've done some interesting stuff there, right? Like carving out some of those cash flows for the press was kind of brilliant, creating like whatever that was, a billion dollars in. In yeah, it was 1.25 1. 1.25 yeah so from 100 they, million dollars in flows out of a billion right like that's, yeah, that's yeah. pretty and what was the what was the equity on at that point what was the multiple well pro it was like four or five something like that right yeah when they did it so pro form it was like two and a half it was really cheap it's not as cheap now Ah, oh, he's so smart. Hold my line in my face. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So if you, like if people think that and they want to learn and they want to watch, like I, I think this is an interesting situation to watch, regardless of you know what the outcome is, because I, I, I think it's hard to argue that that the range of outcomes is insanely tight. Although, uh, it's one of those weird situations where you can retire so many shares that you could actually probably de-risk the equity quite a bit by retiring a bunch of shares. I, I don't, I used to think that I would want more preferreds in front of the common. Uh, Francisco got me thinking smarter about that. I, well, I don't, what are they going to do with debt rather than? Well, you got, they're, they're going to have a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet. They probably already do. So, you know, it's, I think it's like 400 ish million shares out at what 11 bucks. So call it a four and a half uh, billion dollar market cap or whatever. EV. You could, you could spend, well, the EV is a lot higher because you got all the debt, 
Um, but you could take 450 million in the cash and take out 10% of the company and still leave yourself with 500 million of cash. Um, like I, it's interesting. They got a real, real decision here. When you say that the market didn't like the buyback before, you mean the price didn't go up because of it? Is that? Yeah. And I, I think that the market was probably right on that. I'm not sure that a levered buyback strategy was the right strategy to run at that time. I mean, if you're a remaining shareholder, remaining partner in this business, and you think it's reasonably priced, why would you want the price to go up if buybacks are part of the kind of going forward strategy? Well, I don't think that you do. We're on Twitter, sir. <laughs> no, I, th- I, I don't think. Unless you have a very short-term mindset in which you just want to be punching out. Yeah, well, I think that what um, I think what I appreciate about the way that Maffei looks at the world is I think that there's a lot of people that would say, I'm right, the market's wrong, we're going to do this no matter what. And I think Maffei historically has said to himself, like the market actually is pretty smart and I should at least look at what the market's reaction is as some indication as to whether or not I need to re sort of jigger my thinking. Um, And I think that that's created some very smart outcomes for them. I tend to agree with you. I mean, I I think if I was confident in the business right now, I would do a big buyback. Um, But, you know, I, uh, I don't know what they're thinking, but I, it's one of those that like, I think you could, if it stays here for two years and they take out 20% of their shares or three years and they take out 30%, that's like one of those things that the outsiders gets written about, but it's in the moment, it's kind of uncertain. So I just think it's a good learning experience for people to pay attention to. I'm certainly excited about it. Do you guys know, let's uh, Bill's talking about Curate, Q-R-T-E-A is the ticker. It's all I ever talk about. Do you guys have any view on Alibaba? Any of the, the Chinese sell-off? I think the of, Chinese stocks are stupid cheap. There's some everyone, interesting stuff that's popped up there, yeah. Everyone that I have talked to that knows anything about China is like, you Westerners are idiots that don't read the documents that come out that the CCP actually releases. And if you actually read the documents, you'd actually see that there's logic behind some of this stuff. What's, as far the, as the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the CCP's logic? I don't know. I don't read the documents. I'm an idiot Westerner. <laughs> but I don't pretend to. That's why I said like I would have like a 3% position if I had uh, you know Chinese exposure right now. I do think that like... I think the VIE structure, people railing about that. What's I don't, I, I, well, like people say, what do you really own? You own a derivative. My argument on most common equity securities is you don't actually own shit. Like no one is actually owning shares for the voting rights. If you're in a situation where you need to rely on your voting rights, you're like close to zero, right? We're not, we're not actually here owning a thousand common shares because we can vote on it. Like, let's all be real about what we own. It's all just derivatives on other people's decision-making. So then I go, okay, well, so what's different about the VIE structure? And I guess you could say, well, China could just take all of that capital away from anybody at any given time. To which I would ask, like, why? Uh, there's, according to, to uh, I believe I pronounce her name, Ray, uh, like she was, uh, I talked to her last week. She's in, I think it's Tech Buzz China. The the podcast is the one that she does. I mean, there's there's an insufficient amount of capital within China to fund 
the um, businesses that they're trying to grow. So like, you're going to screw all the foreign investors now. Like it just doesn't make sense uh, to me. So I don't know. I, I think there's probably deals to be had in China. I don't know which ones they are. People smarter than me maybe do, but if I had to throw a dart, I'd probably pick 10 cent. And then, uh, I don't know. JD well, probably makes sense too. Baba, you got Munger in there. You got Lilu in there. Yeah. A better price than they got. Yeah. I, I think if Westerners generally go risk off on something like China and they like wake up to this risk, I, I just think that's fear. Like fundamentally, I don't, I don't actually think much changed. Well, Even some, if there's some education crackdown, there's a lot of hair on it. But at some point, like the valuation starts getting interesting enough that, like handicapping it with the hair on it, it's probably still worth taking a look at. Barber, Tencent, a handful of others in there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just I think um, that w- there's hair on tech too. It's just nobody sees it right now because it's growing like crazy. So nobody gives a shit about these dual class shares, right? I mean. It's just what what hair are you willing to accept and how comfortable are you? And for some reason, because we all, well, a lot of us, not all, but live on U.S. soil, we think that Sam Fran is going to take care of us. Like, I think that's just as stupid as anything. Yeah, so- ask, the, ask Fannie and Freddie comment about property rights and <laughs> in the U.S. GM. Sure. Yeah, for I mean- I- colleges. Yeah, like, look, I think my understanding of the education crackdown in China, and I'm going to get this wrong, but is that the the education industry started really taking advantage of um, parents who wanted to give their kids a legitimate chance. And it got so expensive and there's such pressure over there that uh, the government said, we're not okay with this, right? Because you're really taking away everybody's level playing field. Now, whether or not you want to be okay with that assumption, fine, right? But we're dealing with China. So that's the assumption they operate under. Oh, I thought you were talking about the US. Sorry. Yeah, I thought you were talking about US <laughs> colleges too. I was like, yeah, well, we, we well, killed all the for-profit colleges and it completely solved that problem. Oh, no, but, well, so this is like for kids, right? And they're like, they're running kids into the ground. They're studying like, you know, tons of hours a day. Um so I, I don't know. I, I was I was able to listen to a couple of conversations. And, and my only takeaway is that uh, there are way more thoughtful people than most of the hot takes that I see that say that a lot of these regulations are actually pretty reasonable and arguably even more forward looking than what we're dealing with here, which is basically a Congress that can do nothing except for agree to spend. Well, that's always been the case. That's yeah. Yeah. So maybe you can argue good, you know, right? Regulations that don't work are better than regulations. That's that's a fine argument. So place your bet accordingly. But um, I just... I don't know. I guess the pitch for China is something like you do, you've do. you got this political risk, but you got that everywhere anyway. you got this gigantic com- country that's growing very, very quickly. You can get some derivative exposure to that through these tech companies that are like reasonably valued at the moment or like cheapish if they're growing as fast as they are and everything remains the same. You can lose some money there too, so just size them. But you probably there's probably some good exposure to be had there. Yeah, that's a reasonable take. 
oh, good. I'm glad we've resolved everything. We've got 15 minutes to go. Let's find something to argue about. Let's get some questions in. If we Hit us with some questions. We've been Let's a little see. lacking on questions the last We have been. Paul Higgins months. is in the house. That's a boy from Ireland. That's right. Who's got questions? Throw it up. I do. I do agree. Somebody in the comments says, you know, like it appears that Lee Lu, you know, Munger is cloning him and Pabri is cloning him and Guy is cloning. I, I don't I don't know it's that I agree. Turtles works. all the way down. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm also not sure that they're all cloning. They may all be on the same phone call. Uh, you know, it's just kind of working together, I think, is closer than cloning. Have you been on, that's things. how Fintwit works. One person yeah. does the work and 50 accounts pretend like they did. <laughs> Is that the ratio? It's 50 to one. Uh, I don't know. It's probably more than that. Oof. Danny Beltran wants to know the bull case on OpFi. I don't know. Go read their S1. <laughs> like there's a lot of people that need their products. Banks can't give it to them. They have a better way of getting it to them. And they think that they're going to grow or they don't. And it all implodes. That's the bear case. Right. You guys got any thoughts on video game companies? I what Activision Blizzard's going through a major employee problem. Uh, video games are pretty good businesses. They're very franchise driven. Um, I haven't done the work to have informed opinions, but I I would be a buyer on temporary weakness. All else equal. Yeah, there's some cheap stuff in there. I think it's some of it looks interesting. Um, but I don't have any. I don't have any deeper views than that. Yeah, I mean, look, they're they're like very good businesses, right? I mean, it's gotten to the point where we're going to be on like Grand Theft Auto Fifty Seven at some point, and people are still going to be buying them. The franchises are very. Shit, they're going to get seven out. How old? Six. It's like seven or eight years old. Yeah, and like people still play it. Now you're going direct, and they're gonna. I'm sure they're gonna have things that. Well, you already have things that you can buy in game. You got community aspects. Like I get it. The margins on a on a game that is working are rather amazing, but you got to get it working. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Roblox is interesting because you have user generated content. You know, you're not. That's uh, that's a cool business, and you got the Robux. But again, I don't know enough. So I've, I've, I'm having technical difficulties as always, but um, <laughs> I'm on my second screen here. Um, I mean, somebody asked if Curie can go to other platforms. That's the entire debate. If they can, I'll tell you what, it's not a $4.5 billion company. It's going to be a whole lot higher. Like going to your iPad or something? Is that the idea? Well, Grandma's, YouTube. Grandma's iPad, I mean. YouTube, Instagram, like all that stuff. Just uh, something that's not a channel. I think the harder question is like, what do the economics look like in that? Because you kind of have to like nudge somebody to come to that channel. And then are you paying? And then how frequent? Like Maffei had said a little while ago, when you're going over the top, uh, it's like a more targeted purchasing experience, right? It's not as passive. Part of what makes uh, that business great is how like passive it is. So we'll see. 
thanks for the uh, Berkshire Guinness Kitty Fund contribution, Colin. Twenty yeah. euro. That's real money. That is real money. Do you come out next time that we're there? You come have one of those beers with us. Yeah, you, we might have to get you more than one. Big spender. Might have to fill you up. I got, I got mad love for him. Thank he's, you. He's probably, he probably, probably smash a few Guinness too. That's right. We might not be able to afford it. We might be, we might be writing a big liability there. Uh, Jake, thoughts on SEC 15C2-11 about over-the-counter dark stocks? Is that what you were talking about? Uh, I'm somewhat familiar with that. Um, do you have thoughts on it? Uh, do I have public thoughts? Uh, maybe. I think it's... I think people it's, are here for your public thoughts. I know. Uh, it's, it's certainly interesting to... So there's like 6,000 stocks. Let's just back up a little bit and explain it. It's the SEC came out with some ruling a while ago, and it's going to be finally coming into effect. And the interpretation, I believe, by a fair number of the custodians is that they don't want to allow trading of these stocks that are on this SEC list. And they will then place these stocks into what they call liquidation mode, which means you can sell but you can't buy. So one wonders, uh, given that for every buy there is, or for every sell, there is a buy, how you're going to match up uh, the liquidation of this, like who, who's going to be able to buy it at that point. So if you are a, a short-term trader of, of stocks, then this list of 6,000, mostly like over the counter, and, and how you get on that list is you're not, if you're behind on filing with the SEC, your, your financials. Um, most of the companies on that 6,000 stock list are, are appear to be shells and pump and dump kind of scheme companies, not real operations probably. Um, but there are some companies that might be legit. And so if you're, the opportunity may be there to, uh, in a kind of liquidation scenario where people are selling for structural reasons and not necessarily for business reasons. Uh, and, and every company that's on there is one SEC filing away from getting off the list and therefore back as a normal security. So could be something there structurally to, to take advantage of. But um, thus far, my personal digging into that list has not uncovered too many uh, babies that were potentially thrown out with the regulatory bathwater. But if you do have something on that list, I don't know, maybe we need a team effort on it. Uh, Team value after hours, if we can find something good on there, potentially. Team Voss back. How do you find the list, JT? Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find. I think, I mean, all the custodians sent out a list to their customers. Um, I know for sure Schwab and TD Ameritrade were on that list. Um, but I imagine that there's a lot more. So I think it's pretty easy to find if you just search liquidation mode or something in sec and in the recent i don't know if it's been in the news or not but it is it is a possible one of those like it's not hard to imagine 25 year old buffett taking that list and then uh running the geiger counter over it to try to find something that was uh being thrown away yeah somebody pointed out that tandy leather might be on that list that might be true it 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 was on the most recent list that i saw Um, anybody got any views on KKR? Yeah, they looked at that. Probably do fine. 
I, I think all those alt managers are decent bets. I just, I, yeah. you know, until the world explodes, I just don't see any stopping of the funds flowing to those guys. Whether or not, you know, the structure screws you somehow is a, something that everybody should analyze for themselves. But um, if you're talking secular tailwinds, I think those alternative asset managers make a lot of sense. Why do you think there's an issue with the structure? Well, I don't think there. I, I don't well, know that the there is or not, but you know, I mean, it's kind of like betting with Goldman, right? Uh, and then I, I would need to look at each one individually. I can't speak whether or not you own the GP or how much of the GP is owned by the partners, how, where your LP interest really is. Like, I, I just don't know. Um, but those would be the questions that I have. I, I think I don't love some of the. From a long-term duration standpoint, the way that the deals get structured often in private equity are um, leave kind of a bad taste in my mouth. And what I mean by that is like, hey, we go buy this company, maybe we lever it up, maybe we do a little bit of things operationally to spruce up the, the income statement. Um, then maybe we sell it to another private equity company for a markup and we take 20% rake off of that and then they do the same thing. They sell it. And then maybe we buy it back again. And so basically you're just, we just take this business that's supposed to be running and we move it around a bunch of times. And every time we move it, we mark it up and take our big 20% bite out of that. And it's just, I find it to be a little distasteful. But as a shareholder. <laughs> well, I, as a shareholder, potentially, but I wouldn't want to make that as a long-term bet no, that I, it will be a sustainable thing when you you can't screw the customer over over and over and over again and not have it eventually be a problem i got a i got a podcast up slight slight and you you could uh, <laughs> slight diversion here but i got a podcast up with spencer cole who's the cio of a thing called vox royalty uh i wasn't really familiar with this stuff but basically they go around and they buy it they find mining royalties so often a, a prospect to find something and then uh, they keep the royalty for themselves and they sell it off to someone who's a who's either an operator or has the capital to develop the mine and turn it into an operating mine. And so it's sort of like a, a capital light mining type business. And they've done some interesting stuff where these guys, they came out of a mining company and they went and, they went and used op, uh, optical character recognition to scan all these different documents from all these different jurisdictions around the world to identify these mining royalties uh, that often people didn't know about. And this often happens if you're, if you're Australian or Canadian, you'd be more familiar with this, but you know, the, the listed companies, um, you know, they might be a, a gold miner this decade. And then for the next decade, they might be some sort of tech company and they might go back into something, whatever else is hot in the market at that time. And after a series of uh, these sort of transitions, <laughs> Well, not not joking, but after a series of these transitions, uh, there's no management in there and nobody, like all of the institutional knowledge is gone and they're not aware that they have this royalty. And uh, so these guys have tracked these things down and brought this to the attention of two different mining uh, listed companies that were in totally unrelated fields. And so they've kind of got this, um, I think, a unique database and they've tracked all these things down and they're uh, investing and collecting and rolling them up, but it's a really interesting model. Mm. Um, and the, the 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 legendary story from the uh, the industry or the, the sort of mining royalty type industry is Franco Nevada, where 
these guys found in a local newspaper in some small town uh, an old mining prospector who was selling one for two million bucks, a gold royalty. And that gold royalty has paid out to them a billion dollars and the NPV on what they think is left is another billion dollars. So it's a good um, it's a good little cash flow business. You're relying on their ability to identify these um, prospectively to the earnings coming in or to the royalties being delivered, but they've got a good database. They seem to know what they're doing. It's a really interesting podcast. Hmm. I saw the video for it. I will listen to it. I like they, that. They, they, it's, it's a better way of, if you, if you like my, mining and you think there's going to be some inflation, it's a better way of getting exposure because they're, uh, you know, it's not as capital intensive as most mining companies are. Our man, Paul Higgins, says that uh, KKR, you're pretty aligned with the GPs. So that would be a positive. Some people are asking about Sam Adams tap. I don't know. I think, uh, like, I like Dogfish. I like Sam Adams. They're fine. They're, I mean, they're good brands, but um, man, seltzer's getting crowded. There's more seltzers than there are beers now. And that was hard. Is it so, easier to make? Is that the. I just don't think it's very hard to make. I mean, I, I think it's home. like a. Yeah. Well, I think what happened is like White Claw invented the category and they got like a huge first mover advantage. And then Truly was pretty good. AB Bev, my ex beloved, really ruined their rollouts. Uh, for some reason, they thought Bud Light Seltzer was a good idea, which maybe that's why Carlos Brito got fired. Um, and like they had bone and beef that was garbage too. Um, but there's, there's just a ton. I mean, just go to the grocery store and take a look at the seltzer aisle. It's, Do you think that like business wine. becomes a lot more kind of hit a lot more boom bust? Like it used to be beer companies were basically just a no brainer long through recessions and depressions and things like that. Cause nobody stops drinking when the world gets really bad. If anything, they increase the amount of booze that they drink. And so they're pretty they were like safe as houses, those kind of beer companies. And now it seems like, you know, having a good brand, having a macro that everybody in the world recognizes, like that's sort of not as useful as it used to be. I don't think we've really tested it through a um I, I think I think in the rest of the world that's maybe not true. I think in the US that is true. Uh macro I think, is 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 less good. Yeah, because I think craft really attacked the big beer companies in the US in a way that uh, was somewhat undefensible, even if they did become big craft beer brewing companies. It's strange um, how the consumer preferences for different products change, where sometimes you want that same brand and you want a repeatable experience. You want certainty. And then other times you want novelty. You want uncertainty in what you're trying. You want to try a different, you know, flavors and brands. And I don't, it's not totally clear to me why Coca-Cola would be something that you want to have that same experience again but and budweiser used to be that but it's kind of maybe not anymore um i, I don't totally understand what the difference is but it does seem it is a weird kind of schism in in human psychology i mean i think some of it is that coke is like a duopoly no matter where you go right and beer you you have just like i mean now it's up to thousands of choices like anywhere you are in the u.s has their own local brewery yeah yeah but that's because people are demanding it so it was regulatory change, wasn't it? You're allowed to do it. Uh, I don't know. Previously, I, I don't think you were allowed to. I think you could sell on premises, but um, I just, I don't know that there's that much incentive to try to make your own cola. 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, beer you can charge a lot for, right? So there might be more margin. I don't know. Craft Sam, seems hard. Sam and Pepsi are teaming up for alcoholic Mountain Dew. Who's in? The labels look sweet. Oh God, that's like a that is the fast track to idiocracy. <laughs> they've got the, they've managed to get the three sugar, caffeine, and alcohol together into a single. That that might be the thing that tips us over the edge. It might be Mad Max Thunderdome from here on in. Wash that you, down with a couple oxytocin and <laughs> oxycontin. Yeah, that too. Or oxy, uh, yeah, sorry. Is that what I said? What I say? Oxy- oxytocin. Oh Jesus, no oxycontin. Uh, Toby, the other thing is, um, with beer, I think that it's starting to press up against like the wine price point. And I think weed is going to really hurt beer. I used to argue the other side of this, but, um, I've, I've morphed on my thoughts as I got more rational. Does beer have a gluten, uh, gluten problem? Is that the, why people are avoiding beer or a Um, weed kind of thing? I don't know. I just think you get fat on it. And people well, don't want to be fat. Same reason that people are avoiding like pasta and bread. Like, yeah, you don't want to be a noodle shop at the moment. Yeah, yeah. We need to get the weed into the Mountain Dew, weed, Mountain Dew, alcohol. That's that's the that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's when you get Mad Max Thunderdome. And that I, right now, we need to get on this. <laughs> I don't know that you put the alcohol in there too. I just you don't need the alcohol the, at that point. Yeah, no. let's get faded Dew instead. CBD, Mountain Dew. Crazy. All right, guys. Well, we made it on that on that appetizing note. That's the uh, that's the week. We'll be back again next week. Um, this is fun though. It's good to be back. Missed you guys. Indeed. Move with the rhythm. Shake it up. Stop when the clock hits thirteen. Sing one.